Welcome to the Sense of Soul podcast. We are your hosts, Shannon and Mandy. Grab your coffee, open your mind, heart, and soul. It's time to awaken. Today we have with us author Kevin McNevin Clark. He found deep purpose through his work in the behavioral health field, specializing in treating addiction and trauma. He holds a degree in psychology and he has been on his own path of awakening since 2005, getting sober and entering recovery in 2006. Congratulations. He founded Excelsior Addiction Services in 2020 and resides in Virginia with his family, living by his guiding philosophy that there are no hopeless cases. The New Prophet is his first book, and he's already currently working on his second one. We are super excited to have you today. Welcome, Kevin, to Sense of Soul, and thank you for taking time to, to just jam out and hang with us today. We appreciate you. Thanks for having me. Of course. I would love to hear a little bit about your story, you know, your experience, strength, and hope. Yeah, I mean, I started drinking when I was 13. I've been like a really emotionally sensitive person my whole life, really big and loud feelings. And, you know, there was adverse life experiences, of course, that kind of played into it. But by the time drugs became available to me, it was like the sky parted and the angels sang and... uh, I knew that this is something that I wanted. The next 10 years of my life, I spent kind of diving deeper and deeper into that oblivion and just getting really lost, what I kind of considered the wilderness of spiritual sickness. You know, what it was like is what it's like for anybody. But for me, the progressive part was pretty rapid. I just felt like my soul was kind of slipping away, but I always had this like really healthy conscience at the same time, kind of even probably played into my shame story more. Um, because I just felt like extreme guilt for like wasting away my potential. It was like just that, that shame cycle just feeding itself. By the time I was 19, I was getting into legal troubles. By the time I was 21, that's 2005. That's when I had what was my spiritual awakening. I was just at the darkest place I have ever been. Darker than when I got sober, for sure. I just remember that deep feeling in me, that yearning to be loved and to go home. You know, and I had people that loved me and I had a home to go to. But I was so disconnected from that. And again, like, that's like the spiritual sickness to me. I hadn't slept or eaten food for probably like four or five days or something. And I was using all, you know, a whole myriad of drugs, kind of just playing pharmacy with myself. And I went into the woods behind my parents' house because for some reason I thought this is where I need to go. And it was there that I saw a Boy Scout, right? And the Boy Scout told me, like, to get to where you need to go, you need to cross two rivers and be careful not to stray to too much of the side streams or you're going to get lost. And he told me other stuff, but, like, literally that's all I remember. Start like, thinking I'm supposed to go somewhere, like a literal place. And, you know, what ended up happening was I got hot, so I took off my shirt, took off my shoes. I just, I ended up naked, pretty much what happened. Because when I got in the water, my sweatpants came off. And so I was just, like, you know, 100% naked guy not in his right mind in the woods just really wanted to get back to a place that's you know not a physical place I guess eventually I realized like I'm not going to wherever I think I'm supposed to be going to and I went and knocked on some some guy's door (laughs) and uh I asked for help and asked for a blanket really and he gave me one and I know I was like I know you're gonna go call the police and everything like that and 
So he did, and I went to the hospital. I didn't accept any kind of help. I remember when I was leaving the hospital, one of the doctors told me, you know, to take it a day at a time. I, I don't know if I'd ever heard it before, but for whatever reason, that like planted that seed with me. I had that, uh, you know, it talks about in the literature that solemn oath we make. And I swear, every cell of my body, man, I'm not going to use anymore. I'm done. But I had no idea mm -hmm. like what I was up against or like how powerless I was or like the way yeah. like my addictive mind was working against me all the time. So I got out that day and I got high. I got drunk the next day. Two weeks later, I was asking my mom to take me there instead of like going in the back of a police car. Then I was ready to accept psychiatric help or therapists or whatever, but I still wasn't like trying to go to 12 step rooms because I knew that's where alcohol went to die. And that kind of, you know, it was the only thing kind of holding me together or so I thought. So over the next year and a half, I really got to watch the way my mind worked against me. You know, I tried just beer and weed. Couldn't live with my parents anymore because they're like, listen, if you're not going to like do anything about this, you got to go. And I went, I lived in Radford, Virginia, which is a party school. It's like a cesspool, really. Oh, no. <laughs> I was like in the deepest depression of my life after the event that happened. Shortly after I got there, there was a big bowl of Southern Comfort and there were straws and I got one and I blacked out and I came to locked in a room by myself with cocaine. And I, like at that point, I just like don't care about anything. I just hit like the fuck it point kind of self-destruction. So then, you know, like I said, then I moved back to Northern Virginia again. And I lived with the guy who actually sold me my first bag of weed. I moved in with him. And oh. after about, yeah, yeah, after about six months, the police came and they knocked down my door and that saved my life essentially. And I got, you know, December 14, 2006 is when I got sober. It's when I went to jail and, you know, my family, they came to visit me through the glass. I was facing up to 40 years in prison. And I was like, whoa, this is like a long time for this stuff. <laughs> like they're not playing around. And, yeah. Uh, I saw how broken they were and they probably looked at me like that you know a lot of times before but my vision was always so clouded that I couldn't see it so mm -hmm. when I saw that hurt in them something inside of me broke and again like to refer back to the literature that you know it's like the chink in the armor of the ego that allows in the sunlight of the spirit I think that's kind of what happened there and that's when I went back to the dorm where I'm living with like 30 other guys and they called for the weekly AA meeting I asked the guy hey where are you going and this is one of the three men that saved my life. There's three wise men that came into my life and they saved my life all at the exact right time. And Keith, he was one of them. This is a guy who in a blackout blown off half his face with a shotgun. He's who I did my first fist step with and like really showed me I'm not alone. He was just like this loving guy. He'd already been down the road for a couple of years. He'd already been in recovery before. He was working with a sponsor on the outside. He invited me to the meeting. I said, no, nah, that's cool. Maybe next week. <laughs> And he came back, he gave me the book, Came to Believe, and I read that book and I've never had to read it again since. And I crawled into the meetings instead of being like kicked in or pushed in or whatever before. And first I just projected my own inner reality onto everyone around me and was just a bunch of angry people in there, that's all I saw. Then I started to see the lightness that like the volunteers kind of brought in. And I decided I did want that. And one of those volunteers was Jim. Jim and Keith have both passed away clean and sober. Jim with like over 40 years sobriety. He was a World War II vet and he was just like dripping with wisdom. And he was like the grandfather figure that I probably always needed. And he taught me a lot, like couldn't open a door with a closed fist. I remember that was like the first lesson he ever taught me. 
I went into treatment. I did six months of treatment and that's where I met the third guy. And that was Carl Street, my counselor. He gave me a safe space, you know, and I was able to like trust a man again and just like genuinely showed up with compassion and inspired me to be a therapist. Those three guys saved my life. And that's what it was like. That's what happened. And what's like now, I mean, I'm free. I love myself. I've got a beautiful family, started a successful business. I wrote a pretty awesome book, I think. I'm free and I love myself. Those are like the two biggest things. And I know who I am. Congratulations. I'm about to cry. <laughs> I have two questions. Okay. So what's up with you alcoholics always taking off your damn shoes? Mandy, I swear to God, whenever she'd be drinking, she didn't have no shoes on. <laughs> and then second of all, <laughs> the boy that you saw in the woods, was he by himself? I mean, did he just show up out of nowhere? Yeah, yeah. I crossed over like the creek that I always played in when I was a kid. And uh, he was just standing there. Okay. It wasn't like voices you hear or shadows you see. It was like this okay. person I actually had a conversation with. Did you know him? No, I don't. I don't think I did. Okay. My mom thinks it was a spirit guide. Yeah. Yeah, that was my thought too when you were telling the story. Yeah, for sure. And then why do we take off our shoes? Well, my dad, he used to always tell me to take off my shoes. He would show up, like pick me up from my friend's houses, like in the middle of winter with no shoes on, like drive his Jeep barefoot, like come to the door with no shoes on. Oh, and I remember thinking of him saying that, but like when I was running through the woods with no shoes on, I really felt like I could feel the beat of the earth. And my sponsor, like mm. who I've been working with over the years today, he's like someone who, if he suggests something to me, I, I do it. And one time I remember he told me, it's like, take off your shoes and go stand out in the grass. And I did it, you know? So, I mean, mm -hmm. I think it's just great. It's a good way to ground yourself too. So it is. Maybe I do unconsciously too. we know that, you know? I think that. Yeah. My mom said from the day I was born, I never liked shoes that I would walk out to my car in the winter time with no shoes on. Whenever I could get away without shoes, I would. I've just never liked them. And, you know, I listen to your story and I don't even flinch. And that's what happens to us when, you know, we're in recovery because we hear stories all the time mm -hmm. and we're just not shocked because I could totally see myself getting butt naked and running through the woods and ending up knocking on someone's door. I mean, I was there. I yeah. took one of the last times I drank, I tried beating up like nine paramedics. Like we are completely out of our mind. Yeah, it's easy to happen. <laughs> yeah. When did you read the prophet and why did that book inspire you to write the new prophet early in the recovery i read a lot of stuff and i did a lot i think i've always probably been what you would consider a seeker even before i started using drugs i think that was part of the seeking and i was going to the used bookstore there's this giant used bookstore in uh manassas where i live i think i was buying a dr dyer book probably on inspiration see like the prophet it's a black book with golden boss lettering on the side I didn't even know what it was even though like my mom knew what it was clearly and a lot of people knew what it was but something about it like spoke to me so I picked it up because it was like probably like a dollar fifty or something you know and I read it there was stuff in it that landed with me enough because I wanted to read it again later and usually I don't read books twice it gave me that much to where I wanted to study it so every Tuesday I meet with a group of guys that I've met through recovery and we pretty much get vulnerable with each other, check in with each other and study different books. Um, some of them are more experiential, like The Presence Process by Michael Brown. Right now we're finally like going through 
the 12 steps Russell Brand's book with each other. You know, we went through the Dow first, which was, that took like almost two years, I think, because we were taking a little bit at a time and like really going over it in depth. So yeah, and then the profit, I think, was after the Dow. And it was after we studied it again, immediately I started picking up a lot more than I had the first time. Even once I read like the introduction to it, I started just like seeing a lot deeper into the metaphors. Can you kind of explain to the listeners what that book is? Kind of about yeah. So written by Khalil Gibran, Lebanese American poet, published in 1928. I think he wrote it in 1923. It is a book about this dude, and he's about to get on a ship to go home. And I took that as a metaphor for death when I read it the second time. I don't know if he meant it that way or not. He's about to get on the ship, and all these people from the city of Orphalese come up and they like a merchant's like tell me about buying and selling because he'd pretty much been this sage who'd been like observing them for a while and they really wanted to kind of like gather his wisdom from him before he departed each excerpt in there there's like on marriage which actually i i had read at my wedding on children on buying and selling on prison so it's all these like major parts of our life and it's a deeper spiritual wisdom. He uses a lot of like imagery and metaphor in order to kind of like carry that message. I saw that the director of Lions King actually made this a movie. Did he? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's a kid's movie. It's a cartoon. Oh, it's, maybe I did hear that. I somewhere. saw like a clip of it and I was like, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. So. Yeah, I can't yeah. wait to show my kids, yeah. That's awesome. I know. So what makes your book different? So my book, it's a counselor on his deathbed. I just go straight for like, this guy's actually dying. And his son, it's the conversation between him and his son. So it's a Shalah and Ezekiel. And Ezekiel's gathering the wisdom for the town because they all kind of wanted to like get it from his dad, but his dad, he knew his dad just wanted to be with like him like in his like final days um because he'd spent like his life like in service to other people too so it's just this back and forth between the father and the son and the topics are much more uh i guess you would say like emotionally evolved topics or stuff that's more modernized it's things that are people are talking about now that they weren't necessarily talking about at least not in nearly the same way back then so it's more of the inner human experience than like the outer human experience I guess so just like the emotional part I talk about it in the book I wrote I mentioned like the age of ego crumbling and that's where I am very hopeful that that is where we are and that we're coming to like a more emotionally aware culture globally Amen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was one of our, you know, very first episodes was soul versus ego. Yeah. Because I don't even think some of our world knows the difference. Um, no. I love how you say that, the age of the ego crumbling. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I'm going to ask you to do something. If it's uncomfortable for you, please say no. Do you have your book there in front of you? Could you maybe just like let the universe guide you or you know, open it up and maybe read a part that you want to sure. share? Totally. Let's see. So what is therapy? It is said it is a series of getting lost and finding yourself. When healing trauma, if the body is hot, dive headfirst into the pool and begin swimming. 
But if the body is cold, wade into the water, feet first. When you near the depths, it is time to swim. For some wounds will turn the body numb, whereas some wounds set sensation afire. In therapy, a safe place must be provided. Ask permission before examining wounds. True healing addresses the wound itself, though often symptoms of the hurt must be treated first to determine its origin. Two tools you must have are empathy and compassion, but do not use pliers when the job is calling for a drill. The therapist shows the person seeking counsel where the weak spots in his walls are and helps that person develop the strength necessary to break down those very walls, for they must come down from the inside. The therapist, by invitation, travels with his client into the darkest places of the mind, shining a light and providing a map so that the client can himself find his way out of the darkness. Therapy is an art, the art of piecing back together pottery that has been shattered, in some cases into many minuscule fragments, each shard beautiful, but razor sharp. The vase must be restored in order to hold flowers again. The skilled therapist is a mind mechanic. He knows which gears perform what functions, and there is an assortment of tools for different repairs. But the greatest tool is no tool at all. It is simple human connection, empathy, it is one human being creating space for the other and being human. The intuitive counselor is a blindfolded archer. As a blindfolded archer, I shoot confidently. I sense the bullseye before releasing the arrow from the bow. I let go, surrendering to the creative flow of the universe, the arrowhead pulled by divine guidance. I take off my blindfold in time to see the target hit. I watch the unraveling of awakening from the inside out, the physical jolt as the somatic system integrates the hidden memory. Cognition engines out of use fire up, and as they do, you see shock in the face of the target, bewilderment. They begin their feeble attempt to explain that for which words will not suffice. Before too much easily understood can be spoken, enter the waterworks. True beauty is when they set their weapons to the side, and with defenses fully down, the floodgates of suppressed pain open up. An exodus of tears flows, sobbing, feeling for healing. Their inner child is acknowledged truly seen and given safe passage to join them in the present moment. This is the healing magic, the wizard shit of intuitive counseling. The intuitive counselor teaches the student through the mastery of the present moment. Wow, I love that part, Kevin. That is beautiful. Thanks. Thank you no, for sharing that. No problem. Thanks for letting me share it. Yeah, I, I love it. Yeah, I tried to write the whole book pretty much. Have you ever, you've heard of The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron? She's in recovery too. I have not. So it's a 12-week process. It's the spiritual path to creativity and it's to unblock your creative self, which is a lot, of, it's a lot of inner child stuff, really. But you write every day. So for the first seven weeks of that process, I wrote this book. And ideas, you don't think, you just write. You just follow the pen. It was pretty cool because I didn't have to do too much actual thinking, which might have taken away from it, probably. Oh, gosh. And that's so hard to do because I, I know for myself, my ego gets in the way a lot. Yeah, in editing, that's when like my ego starts to come up. For me, it was a lot about how much do I trust myself and know this is exactly the way I want it to be said, even if it's not like the way this person's take on the English language, you know, perceived yeah. it should be said. When you were younger, did you write? Were you shocked at yourself when you wrote this? Were you like, holy shit, where is this coming from? Like, I'm freaking amazing. Uh, I wrote when I was younger. I mean, I think my dad, he's got writer in him. My uncle does, my brother. So pretty much like my brother is who I always considered to be the writer. That was actually one of like the things my censor or my like inner critic held me back because I always thought, well, my brother's this like amazing writer. So I'm not really like a writer. But I wrote poetry when I was younger and I was pleased after the fact that I wrote it when I would read it and I'd be like, 
this is actually good. Like objectively, this is good stuff. <laughs> Your mom must be so incredibly proud of you. She was, you know, you yeah. mentioned, yeah, you mentioned earlier that she said spirit guide. So your mom, I'm assuming, and I could be wrong, was open spiritually. Yeah, my mom was great. I mean, because like I said, I had anger issues as a kid. Like just my emotions just ran rampant, and she taught me stuff like deep breathing, all the stuff that came back later in life. She taught me to draw my feelings. There's this really funny story when I was probably like four. And she was in the kitchen making dinner and I was drawing my anger at this like kid's table in the other room. And then she just heard me say, mom, how do you spell bitch? <laughs> <laughs> and I was just probably just red and black crayons everywhere. Why do you think you had so much anger as a young kid? I did. I kind of did too. I don't know. I would think I was born angry almost, you know? Me she too. Maybe it came from like a past life sort of thing. Maybe that's it. I don't know. <laughs> Shanna last night had sent me some chapters out of the book and if I was going to be totally honest at first I was a little shocked holy shit this man is in his feelings like <laughs> this is you know what I'd seen a picture of you and of course my ego has this idea of what you're going to be like and I'm like you know you've got this very manly man and then this beautiful like poetic page she sent me and I was like this is why I love recovery because you see that happen with so many men especially who um feel like they are not supposed to show their feelings and yeah. so it, it's just beautiful for so many different reasons yeah it's been a process learning how to be okay because even my dad would tell me it's okay to cry in front of people but he, what he would show me a man like holding back his tears like when really sad stuff was happening so I learned like what he showed me not what he told me it has been a journey but that's where like emotional sensitivity turns out to actually be a gift and when I hear that mm -hmm. people are like reading the book finding themselves in it and like crying because like they're able to like identify with the feeling stuff so well then I know I did my job yeah so, so do you feel like you're an empath then is that do you yeah I would I mean I don't call myself an empath but I think my therapist would say that I am she always talks about how much empathy I have yeah and you know, one of the things that I found being an empath when I was able to break down those walls and when I was able to really truly sense my soul, hence our podcast name, yeah, I felt free. I felt fucking free, free from the world's conditions, free from any drugs or prescription medicines or anybody else's holds that they had on me. I literally felt like I broke those chains. And it was just such a freedom. Yeah. And that's, I think soul and emotions have a lot to do with each other. Cause I mean, sometimes when I'm explaining like spirituality or to people that that word is the major turnoff to, it's like, well, think of it as this, like spiritual fitness is essentially the same thing as like emotional stability. Because when people are talking about, oh, I wasn't spiritually fit today. I was getting angry in traffic. You know, they're really just, you know, they're talking about emotional dysregulation. So I think there's like a very strong connection between emotional sensitivity and our souls. Mm. And like, that's what connects us all, right? That empathy. I mean, that's like, if I hurt me, I hurt you. If I help you, I help me. Um, if I help me, I help you. So. Yeah. Um Shanna and I both, you know, are big on teaching people what an empath is, um, but you're right. A lot of people get stuck on that vocabulary and those different words, and we don't want people to just like feel like they need to label themselves. It's just more about teaching them the tools that they can 
um, get to protect themselves. And we always go back to self-love, which is one of the things that you mentioned. Um, what does self-love mean to you? And how did you get there? Like, and how would you, how would you describe to someone that was sitting in front of you as you as their therapist, what's that first step in self-love? First step, let's see. I mean, yeah, I guess the first step is really allowing, I mean, for me, I guess opening up to receiving love from other people um, is a big part of it. And because I wasn't able to give that to myself at first, by any means, and just like, you know, like sometimes we need people to love us until we can love ourselves. Um, mm. I think forgiveness is a huge part of it. And I think the most important part of forgiveness is allowing myself to feel unresolved hurts, you know, integrating trauma as a part of like forgiveness of self and others, like that freedom that you guys are talking about. I think self-love, I think forgiveness leads to self-love. And I think self-love and forgiveness translate to freedom. And I think when you get there, you just want to give that to everybody and show everybody that. I don't know if that yeah. answers. Totally, no, totally agree. Does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember when I felt it, I, I wanted everyone to know, everyone yeah. to experience it. I was like, holy shit. If I can do it, anybody can. So everybody needs to get on this. Well, yeah, you're comfortable in your own skin again. You don't care what anybody else thinks. You know who you, you know your truth and you stand in it. Uh, nothing shakes your integrity. Like if someone tells you to do something and you're already like in self-love and self-governed, then it wouldn't matter if it's the wrong thing. You're just not going to do You're not capable of doing it. Yep. So. And that's so true. Thank you for putting words to that. Because I always try to explain to people like once you have integrity and you know your intentions are in the right place, no one can shake you you know now don't get me wrong sometimes i have demons come back that say um you know i'm crazy or i'm not enough but mm -hmm. it's easier to pull myself out of those dark places because i have that self-love now yeah you can see through it. it's a little more transparent of an illusion than it was before but you know you said something that sometimes we need to let others love us until we can love ourselves. That is true. I mean, isn't that why we're all here on earth together? We just sat here and said, oh, I don't need anyone else to love me because I just can love myself through life. You know, that's not going to work. We're here to have that human connection. Yeah. We're here, we, we're here to yeah, give we, it away just as much as we are to give it to ourselves. 100%. We need each other. And I mean, that's why it's so important that I believe that there's no hopeless cases because like you said, my mom, that was probably like the biggest thing she gave me. She never stopped believing in who I am. You know, even though I was like a turn into like a career criminal, it's like totally like way off the path of like who I am. You know, she knew I wasn't the monster that I had become convinced to believing that I was, you know, and I needed people like that, you know, otherwise I probably would have gone like, you know, back to like a crossing a line that I may not have been able to return from. Yeah. So. You know, it's funny. It's, it's, uh, I was gonna say funny, but not funny. It's, um, it's the same for me. My, you know, I was on the streets in Vegas. I had just gotten out of a detox and I had nowhere to go and I had no phone, no money, no license. Um, I ended up going into a sober living home for like two days and I called my father. He said, I still believe in you. And he drove from Colorado to Vegas to pick me up. And that road trip home changed my life. You know, my dad's very dry, but his messages were like, see that mountain right there, babe? One day you're going to be standing on top of it. I mean, just little things like that, the whole road trip home. <laughs> and yeah. he was at that time, one of the few people that still believed I could get out of the darkness that I had created. Yeah, thank 
God, you had him. <laughs> mm-hmm. Literally. I died once when I was drunk, too. I blew a .57, and they had to resuscitate me. I don't remember that one. Jeez. Yeah. How do you even survive that, right? A miracles. That's why a miracle can always happen. They're always happening. Everything. I, I use that quote in my book, the Einstein quote, though nothing's a miracle, or though everything's a miracle. And then I tie it into the whole AA principle of don't quit before the next miracle. So if you believe everything's a miracle, then, like, you never quit. And you just persevere through whatever. So. Ooh, that's going to be a sticky note on my wall. <laughs> yeah, it's in the perseverance part. Um, you know, at the beginning of the podcast, you said, while you were telling your story, you said that the skies opened up in the end, that um, the sky parted and the angels sang. And at first I cringed when you said that, because I'm like, no, that was more like the sky parted and the like demons saying but that's also part of uh when you go into aa rooms and they say i'm a grateful alcoholic when you first get there you're like fuck you there's nothing to be grateful about mm -hmm. i don't even i can't even comprehend that you just said that but really maybe the angels were singing for you because look where it has taken you now i don't uh wish that anything had happened differently from the abuse to anything obviously it'd be nice if i didn't have to have suffered through some of the stuff I did but I think I needed to in order to get to where I am like I really believe that and I believe that it helps me help other people and gives me like a strong ability to help other people because I just I've been all the dark places your mind can go and I found a way out of it yeah I don't believe that anyone's hopeless at all I think that's a major error in judgment to think that anyone could be because I just know mm -hmm. how I mean statistically I should be hopeless for sure they used to do a global assessment of functioning. When I first met my psychiatrist, she said I was a five out of a hundred. I was like, that's bad. That is <laughs> bad. <laughs> and I was, yeah. so, I was so cute. Nobody in Northern Virginia would even see me. I had to go all the way to DC to see a psychiatrist. I know if like I can get better than I really believe anybody can. It can be hard because I worked with severe mental illness mm. and that's, that's difficult, but you just have to change your expectations of like what progress looks like sometimes and take a step back further from the picture so that you can actually see it. Because sometimes when you're standing up really close to it, it looks like nothing's changing at all. Mm. That's a strong message right there. Thank you for that. I needed to hear that today. Yeah. Well, that's what I learned when I was working with them because it was a lot different than working in an addiction treatment where somebody can have a light bulb moment and like their whole life change. You know, if you're dealing with someone who's had schizophrenia for a long time, it's like the goal is to keep them like, okay, like, are they showering more than they used to be? Or are they staying out of the hospital? You know, that kind of stuff. And you start to see like, are they smiling more? You know, anything. But I couldn't see it, like, I had to really step back. But it, it, it's there, you know. And I think that goes with anyone that's trying to change that sometimes we might put all these expectations on how far we think they're, they should progress in their shift and in their change. And that's not for us to judge. And we maybe sometimes we need to step back and realize that, you know, it's those small victories. You're so like relaxed and cool. You know, I was reading your stuff and reading your reviews. A lot of people have made that comment about you. And I think it's great don't want to feel like you're judged by somebody who's like, so tell me, how did this happen? You know, you're like, hey, I've been there and just sticking to who you are, your experience as your vulnerability, and then sharing it and helping others. I think it's awesome. I'm so glad that you finally opened up a place. Can you tell us about this place? 
Yeah, well, right now it's just, uh, I do outpatient counseling. So it's just individual and group counseling for people in, you know, still struggling with addiction or in early recovery. I also work at a rehab, you know, for a little bit more. If someone's in more of an intense situation, that's what we're kind of dealing with over there. That's Recovery Unplugged. We use music a lot. It's like their tagline, music is our medicine. I've worked there for a few years, but I kind of like working for myself. So I'm doing more of that as time goes on. It's just easier to stay true to who I am, if that makes sense. Yeah. But So Excelsior Addiction Services, we do, I mean, like I said, individual counseling, group counseling. I'm a certified trauma professional. So I believe that's like a big part of it. I started working in addiction and I was like, you can't treat addiction without treating trauma. I can get them to go to meetings maybe. But like sometimes people are coming in and like demons are jumping out of the box and it's almost like bordering on irresponsible if I don't have some kind of trauma informed care because I can't just be like, well, put it back in the box. You know, it's like, well, let's work with it for a little bit and then maybe we can put it back in the box. It was interesting when I went to my therapist, she pointed out that because I had these huge traumatic events happen in my life, like near death experiences, that I had like this misconception of what trauma could actually really be. She, you know, when she made me do my trauma timeline, she's mm-hmm. like, do you not see all this trauma that you had when you were younger? And I'm like, that's not trauma. What are you talking about? She's like, because you're comparing it to like dying. And so she reminded me, you know, people's trauma all looks different. And who are we to judge each other's trauma, right? Like trauma for me could be as big as an air death experience, but trauma to someone else could be something like a car accident. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Trauma is just kind of one of those things that's all over the scale. Yeah, I think a lot of people have misconceptions about that. You know, they think if they weren't like, didn't suffer some like extreme abuse or something or, you know, intense neglect, then they didn't have trauma in their lives. But I mean, an example for me that I never considered trauma till I had a massage therapist that told me it was trauma, because I definitely believe in massage therapy too, as a way of like being in your body and, and healing trauma, really, because it's someone like giving you loving touch to your body. And that's just where the trauma is stored. So I have this scar on my neck because when I was two, I had like all these cysts in my neck and I never considered that like them cutting open my neck and like sticking a camera and reaching their hand in there was traumatic at all. I just didn't even think of it. Maybe that's why I was angry. (laughs) Well, and you do EDMR, right? Yeah. Another thing is IFS. Yeah. Internal family systems. Oh, okay. Essentially it's like, so there's, everybody's got exiled parts uh managers which kind of helps keep the exile part exiled that could be like my tough guy persona or something like that you know the exile part could be like my emotional self or my seven-year-old self or something and you know then like the firefighter which could be self-harm or addiction that like comes out creates a big scene gets the exile part back into exile so it works really well, especially with clients that have more personality disorders. I've seen like, cause they're really fractured parts of themselves. And sometimes they even have names for these different parts of themselves. So it can be really helpful to identify these different parts because if they show up in the session, then I know which part I'm actually working with because it's not as simple as, oh, John just came into my session. So I'm working with John, but which part of John is it? You know, and uh, I think it's really helpful and I think everyone has them. Just sometimes it's more glaringly obvious. So wait, sense. is it like the masks you wear? It's similar. Sometimes that exercise could be helpful in identifying some of them for sure. Okay. Um, yeah, and I guess it is kind of like the mask you wear. I do this one exercise where I have clients sit in three chairs in a group, and one chair is the criticizer. That's your harsh inner critic. 
your deficiency story, your shame-based story, that kind of thing. Then you switch chairs to the criticize. That's like the seat of emotional awareness. This is the way it makes me feel. And then you switch, switch to the compassionate observer. And that's like, you know, meeting it with a kind reality check. So I had this one client, after he switched to the second chair, he started crying and he hadn't cried in 10 years, right? And the day before, I think they were doing stuff with like family dynamics and he had a messed up family dynamic, sad stuff. And so the next day he was having like 10 out of 10 cravings all day. And it was obviously why, because it was like, okay, this exile part got out in group. And it was like the firefighters were like, yo, we can't have this. This is not okay. Cool. Yeah. So. so connecting what triggers you to maybe what brought up some emotions. Yes. But I love how it doesn't seem like you're doing this by the book or anything. You have chosen like some really unique things to practice with like implementing Dr. Rosemary Brown's method for the four step. Mm -hmm. What's that? So she has this four step algorithm and her premise is that all addictions are driven by emotional dependency, which makes a lot of sense. Right. But what happened is she's like the psychologist. I don't even know if she's still alive, but she was like 80 something. I think when she published the book with like 30 plus years sober, but she got sober, it saved her life. But then all these other issues started cropping up and it was almost like taking the 12 steps. And if you've been around for a while, it's a lot of stuff you've already thought about and makes sense. But she's specifically talking about it in this way. And her directions are crystal clear on like how to work a four step. And you're supposed to do it with a clinician. And that can be really helpful, especially because not everybody's on board with I'm going to go out and get a sponsor right away. Or maybe they've gone through it with a sponsor and they're, they're still like acting out, you know, on these other addictive behaviors. Something I've actually done with a therapist as well after having gone through like five other fifth steps and it benefited me pretty profoundly. So I can speak to its efficacy. So I've done EMDR also, and I loved it. It really helped my muscle memory and my body disconnect. My asthma attacks with rain, my brain, like, and my body correlated the two. Like if it's going to rain, then I'm going to die. And I was really shocked. I hardly did any sessions. I, I think I did like five or four. It's like magic blows me away. It's so crazy. And when people try to ask me what it is or how I do it, I'm like, I don't know. I have no idea. I just sit there and all I know is that it's cured. <laughs> yeah. So tell us about it, Kevin. Like what, what happens there? It's, it is amazing. I've seen people go through like pretty severe traumas in a half hour session and then try and pull it up again later, like on purpose to see if they'll get bothered and like nothing, they get nothing from it. You know, it's really cool. I mean, it works different for different people. One guy, it was like the death of his parents and he was there for both of them. And each time it was like first the parent disappeared out of the bed they were in, in the room. Then the other family members disappeared out of the room the second time through, um, you know, through the visual, like the visualization of the memory. Then he's just staring at the carpet and then the memory, then it's like, that's it. It's like totally desensitized. And it's now it's just a neutralized memory, no longer like creating anxiety every day. So what does the session look like? Just for our listeners, since we're talking about some people might be like, what the hell are they talking about? Eye movement desensitization reprocessing. So you use bilateral stimulation. Say you were like tapping on like your legs, you just alternate tapping. If it's alternating sides, they've found out that it slows down the cognitive processing. So when traumatic memories get stuck in your amygdala and your hippocampus, so like refeeling it, like if something happened to me as a child and I get triggered on that memory, I'm feeling like a scared kid, even though I could fully defend myself as a grown man, I'm reacting 
from 15 years ago, not in the present reacting. So what it does is helps you to no longer react from 15 years ago and respond in the present because you, as you reprocess the memory, it goes, you know, just into your cerebellum where it's supposed to be hanging out there. It's like you don't get rid of the memory, but it no longer invades your personal space anymore. Some people use actual physical tapping. Some people use the finger going back and forth in front of the eyes uh, or lights alternating. Mm-hmm. But I like using the the vibrating ones because then they can actually like close their eyes and really drop down into the felt perception of like their body and the memory and i think it's just easier to integrate it and just yeah that's what i used because i'd be too distracted i think with my eyes open with the no way my i had to close works. my eyes and i had head on, headphones on and it was interesting because when she was taking me you know back and, and to be honest she didn't do a lot of guidance she wasn't like mandy let's go back to the day you had an asthma mm-hmm. attack she would kind of set a scene and just let me go. And I mm-hmm. was shocked at some of the memories that came up. The, even And I was 18 years old when I had this asthma attack. That's what's cool about inner child work or trauma work. It's like you get access, just like when you numb emotions, you know, you numb pain, you numb joy. When you numb out unhappy memories or block out unhappy memories, you block out like the happy ones too. So it's like all of a sudden somebody has access to their childhood again and they haven't, you know, for all of their adult life. No, I've never thought about that. You're right. Like if you're in this stage of your life where you're going to block out the trauma piece, that's sad because you are going to block out the good too. And that's, that sucks. Yeah. Mm. Did you have someone in your family named Betty? Yeah, that was my Grammy. (gasps) She's been here since the very beginning. Look, I wrote it down. I wrote down lots of things because I had this like spirit with me this entire time. Oh my God, I have to find it. So now I can tell you everything it said. She died at the beginning of my addiction. She's part of my safe place. When When I tell people what a safe place is, my Grammy, she's there in her Gilligan looking hat and her wiry white hair and her wise kind smile and her red knit sweater. Yeah, my Grammy's definitely part of that. Oh my God, that's so crazy from the very beginning, but I didn't want to freak you out. So I wasn't like, (laughs) hey, by the way, Kevin, someone dead is with me named Betty. Yeah, that's what she went by, Betty. She's awesome. Wait, I just have to show you this. This is hilarious. This is what I look like when I podcast because I take notes. So look at that. I saw you writing. (laughs) Wow. Oh my goodness. That looks like that's a lot going on there. Okay, so here was my notes at the beginning. So I had, she was a, she has a big influence on you. Her name was, is Betty. Um, She is coming from the spiritual world, but she was also spiritual here. Very soft-spoken, loves you, is with you every day, supporting you, very proud of you. Something about a bow and arrow, a stream and flowers. I feel like she's telling me she really connects with you through nature and that's your place. Yeah. Andy, did you write that bow and arrow thing before or after he read that? It, I wrote it at the very beginning of the podcast before he ever read the therapy thing. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Can't wait to tell my mom. Oh, I feel like she's always with me. For real. Yeah, that's so awesome. I love it. I love when, you know, when I get, it's just so validating about the afterlife and the world we're in and how supported we are. So Yeah, that's a Betty. chapter in my new book is uh, mentors, dead or alive, preferably dead and alive. And because I have like, I have spirit guides for different things, you know, I'm like my mother-in-law is like my family spirit guide and I have an ego spirit guide because that can be a problem for me. So I got a few, you know, a whole team. <laughs> Explain that. What's What do you mean an ego spirit guide? So my first mentor in the field, I think, struggled a lot with that stuff. And just whenever, like, I'm kind of in this space of, like, I need to slow down or, you know, 
strengthen my boundaries or practice humility just like something he says comes i've even dreamed about him sometimes and like i can't remember what but he i had one dream where he said something to me and just was extremely helpful like that's when i knew for sure because before i would like kind of think of him or a bird might fly up and i'd be like huh you know you just kind of get these feelings they turn into knowings after a while and when they're knowing then it's a good time. Oh, yeah, this I has know. been a lot of fun. I really like you guys. You guys are just. <laughs> so tell us about your next book coming up. Uh, the next one, it's going to be something to do with coming into alignment with your truth, like the conscious heart. I'm going to go kind of like a lot of young and a lot of uh, roomy uh, alternating. Like I have like a, there's like 11 chapters and each chapter has four sections. It's going to be more experiential, you know, so there'll be like a journal prompt for one section and inner activity, something you do with somebody else for another into practice. So like, how does it show up in your daily life? And then like a special kind of assignment in the other section. So it's going to be, it's kind of like a lot of stuff I've been working on the last couple of years, probably mirror work and, um, you know, healing trauma. I mean, I could tell you guys all the chapters list, but it sounds pretty cool. So you might, you, you want to hear it? Yeah, let's hear it. All right. It came to me like in like another creative outpouring one day. And I was like, oh man, this is going to be better than the first book. The first book's just to set the table. And so I think like it's almost important that Khalil Gibran inspired it because it'll, some people will be like, oh, I'll read this just because I like the prophet and see what this is all about. I think it's all happened the way it's supposed to, obviously. So chapter one is mirror work, finding the way in the house of mirrors you live in. Chapter two, shining a light into the shadows, accepting your secret self. Chapter three, the pathway of forgiveness from trauma to triumph. Chapter four, knowing knowings, signs, clarity, and intentions. Chapter five, mentors, dead or alive, preferably dead and alive. Chapter six, return to gut, trusting your instincts. Chapter seven, the magic of intuition, tapping into the power of presence. Chapter eight, honoring your highest self, raising your frequency through a life saturated in meaning. Chapter nine, authentic humility, discovering unshakable confidence. Chapter 10, your friends are your future, matching vibrations and manifesting dreams. Chapter 11, knocking down walls, giving yourself permission to feel everything. Sounds good, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, sounds amazing. Oh yeah, my gosh. For real. And now it's time for Break That Shit Down. All right, I'm going to break that shit down. Love yourself, and the only reason you need to is because you're lovable. That's it. It's the only reason. That's it. Thank you. you can get it on uh, Amazon, obviously, The New Profit. You can get it through my website, Excelsior Addiction Services. I have an author page, which has a link to my Square site. If you're in the U.S. and you want a signed copy or something, or just want to buy it directly from me, and you can get it from Bubba Press. So there's a few places, but Amazon's probably where most people are going to go because it's the easiest. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. It's nice to meet you. And when you get that second book out, let's have you on again. Totally. I'll let you guys know. It'll be a little bit, I'm sure. But Yeah, I'm excited for it. And uh, thank you for blessing me with Betty's spirit today. She's very sweet. I know. That like made my whole year. <laughs> easily good. already good. the rest of the year it's gonna be hard to top that so. <laughs> well good because she loves you deeply yeah. all right thank you so much thanks for being with us today we hope you will come back next week if you like what you hear don't forget to rate like and subscribe thank you we rise to lift you up thanks for listening